going to start this. This is the Theology 3 class, and let's go ahead and open up with a word of prayer. Lord, may you bless this time of study as we continue to talk about and learn about the, the various beings that you have created and their purposes and, and how that uh, is meant to help us grow in our sanctification. May this knowledge lead to um, right living and greater worship of you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, um, so we've been talking about angels, angelology, uh, and that, and demonology. That's what we were left off last week. Was talking about the um, creatures and uh, that are known as demons, and also Satan, uh, how they are fallen angels. We looked at various scriptures to demonstrate that um, these uh, are not just a, a separate category, a whole other new creature, but demons are themselves fallen angels. We looked at Revelation and Matthew 25 as well, I believe it was, that um, Satan led a third of the angels in heaven um, to rebel against God. Some of them are tucked away in prison already in the abyss or Tartarus in the Greek, um, but many are out roaming about uh, in the world. And uh, we looked at all the various um, things that they do to bring dishonor to God, to trip up the saints, and to hinder unbelievers from receiving the gospel. And we talked about, you know, kind of a mixture of about Satan here and there and demons because they operate very similarly in the same way. But I want to zero in a little bit more on Satan himself. I want to talk about some of his powers um, so that we're aware of them. And that will lead us then into page six of your handout, uh, number three, where we talk about his limitations. So what I'm about to talk about is not in your handout. It's bonus. So right in the margins if you want to take notes. But I just want to talk about some of the powers. Hebrews chapter 2 uh, reminds us as Christians that Satan had, past tense, had the power of death. And that is something for Christians he doesn't have the power over anymore. So for unbelievers, he still has that power in that what we mean by that is um, Satan knows that the penalty of sin is death. And he knows for those who are not in Christ, who do not trust Jesus alone for salvation, that death is this final separator from them and God. And that is a weapon he uses. He uses that in many different ways, I think, to deceive people. Um, and as well as to scare people. But for, for um, believers, the, the sting of death is gone. It is no longer having any power. Jesus broke that when he rose from the grave. He demonstrated his power over that. He is the one who has the ultimate keys over death and Hades, as Revelation tells us. Matthew 10 reminds us not to fear people. Christians don't fear those who can kill the body but have no power over the soul. Instead, we're to fear God alone who has power over body and soul. Satan uh, has power to afflict people, afflict to torment uh, physically. Um, we think you see passages like, uh, we'll probably bring this up a couple times, but 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when Paul talks about how he has a thorn in the flesh, he says it's a messenger from Satan. 
And so uh, whether you interpret that as a physical um, affliction or a spiritual, um, there's good godly people who come on either side of that interpretation, but we see uh, Satan there attributed with affliction. Uh, Satan has a power to oppress through sickness. We see this in Acts chapter 10, Luke chapter 13, particularly with a woman who was uh, bleeding for many years. Uh, He has the ability to distract uh, and confuse people on spiritual issues. Um, so you see that in particular, like Matthew 16. I think that's where uh, Jesus is talking about how he's going to go to Jerusalem and be crucified and betrayed. And Peter's like, no, Jesus, this should never be. You, you could never do this. I'm not going to let this happen. He's like, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about the things of God. And so he attributes that spiritual confusion there in Peter's life to uh, satanic influence. Um, Satan has the power and authority over governments. Um, We see he is the ruler of this world, so he is active in the political sphere and realm. We see that even um, in his temptations of Jesus, right? When he tempts Jesus, he tempts them by saying, I'll give you all these kingdoms. Look at this. Now stand up here with me. See all that? I'll give it to you. So, in order for that to be a temptation, it had to be legitimate that God has given him uh, enough leash, because remember, God's in control of everything, but God gave Satan enough leash and power to have some ownership and power over the government. Uh, He has the power to snatch away the gospel. We talked about this a little bit, the parable of the seed and the sower in Matthew 13. Uh, He has the power to blind the eyes of unbelievers um, so that they are hindered. So when that gospel message enters their ears, it passes through the second one and it doesn't doesn't produce any fruit. He has uh, the power to possess people. Uh, We'll talk about demon possession a little bit this morning as well. Um, But we see that particularly with Judas. Judas Iscariot was possessed by Satan himself. um, And he also possessed the body of a serpent in Genesis chapter 3. He is a murderer. So John 8, uh, John 8 talks about how he's the father of murder and father of lies. He's a liar. Again, John chapter 8, he's a tempter, Acts chapter 5, and again, blinds the eyes, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Um, and then what's important to note, too, is, you know, he has these powers, and he's really good at it. Like, he, Satan is uh, probably, arguably, the most powerful created being on earth. Okay, created being, right? I'm not talking about Jesus, God, man. He, Jesus wasn't created. But the most powerful being, he's an angel, and angels are pretty strong, and this guy's the leader of the demons, okay? So, you know, you equate his power maybe to the level of, like, Michael the archangel or Gabriel, something like that. So he's very, very, very good at this stuff. So what does it look like, then, for us to be aware of his power? You know, Ephesians chapter 6, you turn there in your Bibles with me real quick. Because remember, we talked in last week talking about how this theology is not just meant to be head knowledge, but to lead to worship, that's doxology, and then orthodoxy to leading to right living. And so, why do we need to know about the powers of Satan? Why? Um, it's because in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, it says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? So that you can stand, uh, you'll be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So it's important to know how he schemes, right? Schemes is kind of a very uh, nebulous, uh, very uh, large categorical word, but what does that mean? 
He's scheming, okay? What, how? There's lots of different ways that you see in Scripture um, that he schemes he, uh, and uses those powers in particular. So I'm going to give you a couple. Again, this isn't in your handout, so you write this in the, in the margins. But if he's a liar, then we need to be on guard for him to distort or even just deny the truth. Distort and deny the truth. Um, there's really subtle ways Christians can fall into this. This isn't just, you know, if, if when we talk about Satan lying, it's not just him going around going, the gospel's not real, neener, 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 right? I mean, he's very good at this. He's very subtle. So Christians are tempted to distort the truth as well. So you think sometimes in Christian circles, it's easy to believe that immediate success in ministry is better than doing things God's way. So sometimes we... Do ministry in God's way with patience, with godliness, according to what His Word says, instead of being ruled by pragmatism or worldly reason and logic. And it doesn't always, when we do it God's way, it doesn't always seem to produce benefits right away. You don't get that uh, 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 instant gratification. Sometimes churches get caught up in a numbers game. It's all about getting the numbers, whatever it takes to get people in the door. That's a distortion of the truth. That's a, sometimes even a denial of the truth. Sometimes we get de- a deceived by thinking my desires are more attractive than God's Word. That's deception, right? When we're tempted by sin and we know what God's Word says about it, but yet we're like, man, though, this temptation, it seems like it's so much better than obeying God's Word. God's Word is just crusty and dry. There's no joy in that. That's satanic. That's, that's, part, of his, his, that's part of his shtick, his scheming. We think human reasoning is far better and authoritative than God's reasoning. I am the master of my own fate. All right, Disney, the whole Disney world, uh, mantra, follow your heart. That's satanic. That's, that's the distortion. That's a you do not want to follow your heart. Jeremiah 17 is very clear about that. A second, way he, uh, a second version of his schemes would be to discredit Christian testimony. Satan loves to make Christians look bad because when Christians look bad, God looks bad. To, to, to smudge and to slander and smear God's name. How does he do that? Well, anytime there's infighting in a church, churches split, divide over um, non-important, non-essential issues, when Christians are um, bitter towards each other, unforgiving, when pastors fall into moral failure or any kind of church leader, those things Satan loves to use to discredit the gospel witness and testimony of Christians. Uh, Christians can do this in our own personal lives when we think God's words and commands are flexible. I hypocritical, live a hypocritical life. Sometimes I obey God's word, but only really when it's convenient for me or easy. Uh, my chief goal is, uh, and responsibility in life is my happiness, right? Christians can fall into that. We can be tempted by that, thinking it's about me. What can I get out of church? What can church do for me? What is you know, my spouse? Why isn't my spouse making my life happy? They're supposed to be here for me. It's very tempting and easy to fall into those traps. My reputation, this is a big one. Sometimes it's easy for Christians to think when we sin, when it's quote-unquote private sin, it doesn't impact anybody else. You sin in your house. You sin against your wife, your husband, against your kids. You're just, you know, in your own thoughts, in your own heart, whatever it is. That's just between me and God. 
to think and deny or to distort the idea that when you sin, it actually sends a ripple effect of consequences out because now you, until you confess and repent of that sin, you have been doled as a tool in God's hands. You are not functioning the way God has uh, deemed and asked you to any longer because you, are, you need to be sharpened again. So there's this subtlety there, the distortion, where it's, we think, man, my rep- it's my reputation, it only affects me. It's my sin, it only affects me, when really it affects many people. The third scheme of the devil is to depress or destroy believers' enthusiasm for God's work. He can do this when we become consumed with idolatry, worshiping anything that is inherently good in itself, but loving it more than we love God. Idolatry is a very subtle thing, right? We can take a good thing and make it a bad thing when we allow it to become a ruling thing. That's how you find out what's an idol in your life. Right? For example, the, the wife who says, I wish my husband were a good godly leader, and that's a good desire to have. But when she starts nagging him or giving him the cold shoulder and brewing or bitter because he's not, uh, it became an idol. It's a good thing. Or vice versa, the husband, I want a wife who respects me and submits. But he's a jerk and he's, and he's overpowering and he's, a, and he's unloving in his leadership. Yeah, he has a good desire, but he's not going about in a godly way. He's become an idol. So this is a very easy for us to fall into those traps of idolatry and materialism, but we can also be depressed and dest- uh, destroy uh, our enthusiasm for God's work when we are defeated by our sin, when we feel guilty of our sin and we're not taking our sin to the cross. I've sinned. I'm worthless. God could never use me. Or I'm weak. I'm weak, and how can God? How could I ever be effective for God? So, those are some other schemes of the devil. And lastly, a fourth scheme would be that God, the Satan just dilutes our effectiveness. We can do this when we're proud of our own efforts. When we when we do something for the Lord or for church, and people give us that attaboy and that pat on the back, and it's like, yeah, thank you. Please stop. I'm humble, but you know, you keep it coming, right? That can dilute the effectiveness of God's work in us. Um, uh, we can dilute, he can dilute our effectiveness when we distort um, doctrines. So we think about like eternal security, the fact that objectively when God saves somebody, you are saved. And uh, some people will abuse that and say, well, I'm saved, so I can just go out and do whatever I want now. I'm a carnal Christian. I just live my life the way I want, but it's okay. I, I asked Jesus into my heart. He, I asked him to save me. Right, that, that dilutes the effectiveness of Christian ministry. Uh, and it, it really it does all those other things too. It, it discredits Christian testimony. We could, but on the other flip side of the carnal Christianity, we can become legalist. And that dilutes the effectiveness of ministry too. I got to obey God so that he's not angry at me and so that he's happy with it. I got to earn his favor. I got to keep earning it. I got to read my Bible today or God's going to be really angry at me. It'd be legalistic. We can dilute our uh, ministry as well by not being just biblical and upfront about our sin. So many times, and I'm guilty of this too, we might call our sin a different name than what the Bible does so that we feel better about it. So I'm not angry. I was just frustrated. Anyone ever said something like that? So it's it's easy to uh, wax eloquent about our sin, to polish it up and make it a little... It's not as bad as you think. Satan's tactics, he's very, he's, very, he's very subtle. He doesn't come out and just be like, I'm the, I'm the devil and I'm trying to get you to sin. He disguises himself. 
We see them disguise and dress up lies in the things you see on TV, in the news, uh, social media. Oh, it's just rife with lies. And you see him at work in those things. He disguises it. He, di- he gets you to start dialoguing, having an internal conversation about your temptation. Well, kind of like, you know, just break down Genesis chapter 3, right? He disguises himself, talks to Eve, gets her to start talking, entertaining this idea of eating the fruit, and then denial of the consequences. Did God really say, well, you start questioning it. Well, maybe there won't be any consequences. Well, maybe it'll be okay this time. You start to deliberate. First John 2.16 talks about the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those things are at work in your heart, and then all of a sudden you engage in it, and you have spiritual death going on. So that's kind of the schemes of the devil. Now, in the power of the devil. Now I'm on page six of your handout. It's important to realize, despite how powerful Satan is, despite um, his uh, schemes, we do have armor to defend against. As Ephesians 6 talks about, we don't have time to go through all the different parts of the armor. One of the key aspects of it is the Word of God. And the armor, the sword of the Spirit, and all that is defensive. It is not an offensive description that we are to go out and slay demons and and Satan, but to defend against his attacks. But it's important to know his limitations so that you don't think Satan is under every bush and rock. So Satan, first of all, is accountable to God. Job 1.6 and 2.1 say, Now there was a day when the sons of God, that's a reference to angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan was also among them to present himself before the Lord. So here you have this picture, two different occasions in the book of Job, where Satan is coming to present himself to God, to answer to God. God's on his throne, and Satan just doesn't get to do whatever he wants. Um, he is also uh, not only uh, accountable to God, but he's also in that sense of having to come and, and speak to God. But even just thinking, remember how he asked God, you know, oh, well, Job only is righteous because you've protected him and you've blessed him. That's the only reason he loves you. So let me prove to you that he actually is not a faithful and righteous man. And God allows him to do things, but he always restrains him. He says, you can go and you can take the lives of his children. You can take his stuff. You can take his help, but don't kill him. You cannot kill him. So he's accountable to God. He has to answer. He's restricted by him. Luke, uh, Satan is restricted by God, as we see in Luke 22. Um, again, this is uh, uh, Jesus talking to Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I think that's just such an interesting picture, such a wonderful thing. A, it's a picture of Jesus' intercessory ministry, his prayer for believers. Um, I think it's also just a wonderful picture of how often we take for granted the spiritual warfare that's going on, not just that fact that like Satan is after every one of you. Because remember, Satan is limited in his being as well. He's not omnipresent like God. He's not everywhere at all time. He can't be. Even in Job, he says, where'd you come from? From roaming around the earth. Like, I have to go roam around the earth because I can't be everywhere at one time. So Satan's not behind everything that you're tempted by. He's a busy guy, right? But here, you do have an example where Satan, in this instance, but maybe it could be a demon in someone else's life, 
is trying to tempt somebody. And because somebody prayed, that temptation didn't come to fruition or he didn't fall fully, right? Peter did stumble, but he didn't fail. He didn't fall away from the faith. And he was able to then turn again, repent, and strengthen his brothers who also abandoned Jesus in the garden. So it's just such an interesting thing. I think about any time in your own life when you have been tempted but did not reject Jesus fully, you didn't fall away from the faith, or whenever you've gone through suffering and you didn't fall away from the faith, God has actively been working to keep you in the faith. And that's just a precious, precious truth. Uh, Letter C there, Satan is used by God. So God, Satan's accountable to him, he's restricted by him, but he's also used by God. And again, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, God used him, uh, Satan, to put a thorn in the flesh of Paul in order to keep him from exalting himself. Why, was he, why would he have been tempted to exalt himself, to be proud? Because he had received a vision of heaven. Not, not everybody gets to have those. And he says in a few verses before that passage, he talks about it, and he says, well, in order to keep me from being arrogant because of the revelations that I've received, I got God used Satan to put a thorn in my flesh and to keep me humble. And then as you continue reading in the context, you get to verse 9, he actually says, because of my weakness, God's power is made manifest, and therefore I will boast all the more in my weaknesses, because when I am weak, then I am strong spiritually speaking, in God, in Christ. And God is glorified in it. So God uses Satan's evil to bring about good. That's like Genesis 50, 20, right? When, Je- when Joseph is saying to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Or in Acts chapter 4, when it talks about, well, God ordained that Herod and Pontius Pilate would put the Son of God to death to bring about salvation. The greatest evil ever perpetrated, and Satan was involved in it, brought about the God, only God could do this, brought about the greatest good in all of creation. That's the God we serve. Let's skip that question there for time. Let's talk about, uh, before I talk about demon possession, any questions? I'm on page seven now of your handout. Any questions about talking about the schemes of the devil and the powers of the devil and demons. I'll say one of the applications of this is to be on guard, to be cautious. Sometimes it's really easy to just kind of in the flow of life, passively intake the things we hear and see from the world. So how easy is it for all of us? I think all of us can get tempted in this way. You watch the news and you start to get afraid. You start to worry. You start to complain. You start to get angry. That's satanic influence, right? The news isn't a Christian organization. They're not thinking in a biblical worldview. So why would you just digest whatever they say without thinking about what Scripture says? There's satanic at work. Satan at work in those things. And not just liberal versus conservative media. It's all over. Social media, oh, man, so many. Do you know what they call people who make a living on Instagram? Influencers. Like companies pay stay-at-home moms or guys who work out or whatever. They pay them to buy their product, to use their product and film themselves to influence people to go and buy it, to use it. It's just... It's crazy. It's like they don't even hide it. Like, I'm trying to influence you. 
And it could be all sorts of different philosophies or worldly thinking about all sorts of stuff. TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook. People are peddling all sorts of stuff. Are you on guard against the schemes of the devil and how those things can um, sneak through and get in there? It's subtle at times, very subtle. Let's talk about demon possession. Demon possession, it says here, the compound, uh, well, I don't want to get into the Greek word about it right now. <laughs> there is a key term in the Greek word that talks about how a demon controls a passive host. So there is a difference, though, biblically between demon possession and demon affliction. So demon affliction would be examples like I mentioned again, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, with the thorn in the flesh, the messenger Satan. Paul wasn't possessed. He was afflicted by Satan, though. Job, Job was afflicted by Satan. His health, his children's lives, uh, his, his, his material possessions, that was all an affliction, a demon affliction. Um, Acts chapter 5, uh, 16 there, let me turn there real quick. Um, is another example of demon affliction. Uh, and, the, and the Gospels differentiate between sickness, so not all sickness is demon-related. In the Gospels, it differentiates between demon affliction and true, genuine sickness and, uh, you know, and things like that. So again, you've got to be careful not to look for a demon under every rock. It says, "...the people gathered from the towns from Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean, unclean spirits, and they were all healed." And so there you just have an example of affliction, demon affliction, but not Possession. So how do you know if it's possession? Oh, another good Old Testament example would be Saul. Saul was afflicted by an unclean spirit, a demon. And then David would come and play for him, and it would soothe him a little bit, but that spirit, that demon, would return and afflict him. He wasn't possessed, but he was afflicted. So what's, how do you know if it's demon possession? Well, the first thing you'd see is, as we see in the Bible, uh, superhuman strength. So Acts, I, the story's always really funny. <laughs> superhuman strength in Acts chapter 19, you have the sons of Sceva, right? These seven sons who go in and try to do a demon exorcism, and the demon is like, well, I know Paul, but I don't know you guys. And then the, he overpowers seven men, and they run away naked and beaten up. Like, it's just like that. You don't presume uh, to go and tell demons who are very powerful beings that you're going to exercise them. It didn't work out very well there. Uh, they, so superhuman strength, we see that in um, the the demoniac and Mark uh, as well. Right? They could break they break chains. People try to imprison them. It doesn't work. Um, so the, the superhuman strength is a is a characteristic of demon possession. Physical torment in Luke chapter eight uh, it says Jesus when Jesus came onto out onto the land he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothes clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in the tombs seeing Jesus he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice what business do we have with each other Jesus son of the most high God I beg you do not torment me for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man for it had seized him many times and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert 
Another example would be Matthew 17, 16. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. So uh, the demon possession often causes great physical torment to the person possessed. Um, like Matthew 17, it's the father bringing his son to Jesus, and he says that this demon would throw his son into the fire and things like that. So terrible, terrible suffering. Some of, the, some of them would cut themselves um, as well. Outward violence, Matthew 8. When he came to the other side of the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. Again, the sons of Sceva, too, were beaten up and their clothes were taken away as they ran away. Um, loud cries, Mark chapter 1 and Mark 5, talk about how they would scream and gash themselves with stones. Uh, they possess supernatural knowledge. So think about like as soon as Jesus gets off the boat and enters the land, this guy comes up and is like, Whoa, Son of God, what are you doing here? So it's like they know who Jesus is, even though it's God veiled in the flesh. They had supernatural knowledge um, that uh, humans did not have. Letter F, they uh, cause physical maladies such as muteness, deafness, and seizures. So I'm not going to read that passage for the sake of time. And then um, it should be noted, again, just to be careful here, it doesn't mean if you have seizures... I've had seizures before. It I was not demon-possessed. So it... it, it it's careful when we look at scriptures describing something, not to then draw a conclusion that the, every case is the same. So as you read the Gospels, you say, well, man, look at this devil, this uh, demon is causing seizures. So every time I see a seizure, it must be the demon. No, nope, that's, that's a bad conclusion to draw. So when the Bible is describing something, it's not necessarily saying that's normal for everyday life. Um, it's nice when you read scriptures and it tells you things, but if you have a child or you yourself struggle with seizures and stuff, I don't want you to go home today thinking, I've got demon-possessed. So, But that leads to the next question. Can a Christian be demon-possessed? Short answer, no. No, they cannot. Um, the, this handout here talks about how there's been a, a growing movement in Western culture to create greater awareness of the supernatural, reality of supernaturalism uh, and, and uh, uh, spiritual warfare that's going on. And yet, uh, I think the uh, people have overcorrected and probably emphasized it too much um, to where you try to, uh, people have gone so far to say depression, anxiety and insomnia are um, uh, effects of demon possession. So obviously that is way too far and incorrect. Uh, but a key passage that helps us understand that Christians cannot be demon possessed would be Matthew 12, 43 through 45. Jesus says, Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will be also with this evil generation." So you just know, in the context here, this passage, Jesus 
um, is speaking and, and rebuking, I think it was rebukes probably a better word than revile, rebukes the Jews for their hypocrisy. In waiting for a sign, they express their reluctance to believe. Unlike the repentant Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba, the Jews stand condemned for their wasted opportunities. While they cleanse themselves from external idolatry since the exile, their repentance has not reached full term. So then Jesus takes his audience back to the incident which began the discussion, the exorcism of a demon-possessed man. The Lord teaches that freedom from the demon is not enough. uh, Ownership by the devil must be replaced by ownership by Jesus Christ. Otherwise, the expulsion is temporary. Moral reform without the empowering and indwelling of the Holy Spirit will never hold. And so Jesus is the stronger man. He can go in and bind the weaker man. Um, but uh, it is not possible for Christians who are united with Christ, who have the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, dwelling within them to be possessed by uh, a demon. So that answers pretty much that first question there, letter A. But uh, letter B, uh, what, uh, when, I guess... We could ask it anyways, but so letter A there, uh, this is page 10 for me. According to this passage, uh, Matthew 12 there, what would prevent a demon from re-entering its host? How would you guys answer that? If somebody came to you and it's like, I'm afraid of demon possession, how would you tell them? What's What's the cure? What's the protection? Okay, how do you get that? Okay, prayer, confession of sin, salvation. Yeah, you got to be saved, right? You don't get the Holy Spirit. I mean, you can pray if you want if you're not saved, but it's not going to, the Lord's not listening to that prayer for an unbeliever unless they're humble and contrite. Salvation. So if somebody's really scared, I don't want to be demon-possessed. It's like, okay, well, it may or may not happen if you're an unbeliever, but you want to guarantee it won't happen? Put your faith in Jesus Christ, and he'll protect you from that. And when does the Holy Spirit take up residence in the believer? Because somebody said, or you know, somebody said that Holy Spirit, we need that. Yes. When does that happen? Yeah. Moment of conversion. Boom. Done. In light of this, what is the best way of exercising a demon? <laughs> you ever thought about whether you, whether or not you should exercise a demon? Lead the person to Christ. Preach the gospel. Now, just to be clear, the Bible does not command believers anywhere to go out exercising demons. But if you found yourself in a situation where you thought somebody was acting demonic, being very strange, very crazed, just start talking about Jesus. That's the key. Talk about the gospel. That's what, that's what is needed in that moment. Other passages to consider, 2 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. 1 John 4.4, 4, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. James 4.7, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
In 1 Peter 5, 6 through 10, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be a sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who calls you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen and establish you. So what's the what's the danger of attributing all sorts of maladies, insomnia, depression, fear, etc., to demon possession? Does that give more power to Satan than he is due? Yeah. Give, yeah, yeah, it gives him more power than he is worthy of. It gives him more em- emphasis and attention than the Bible does. You know, and uh, like he said, it makes him seem unconquerable. It's pretty scary if uh, if that's the case. What else? Any other thoughts? Why? What is the danger of doing that? Talked about it about a little bit last weekend as well. I would say, um, you know, the old slogan, the devil made me do it, mm-hmm. kind of negates the fact that, like, the world is broken. Our own sin plays a part in that as well. Mm-hmm. This world is a wreck because of sin, mm-hmm. not just Satan residing in us. Yeah. So maybe sometimes it can, uh, if I summarize what you said there, um, we deny accountability, culpability in our sin, if it's a sin issue, or we take a physical problem, like maybe insomnia, something physically that is causing us from getting sleep uh, and attributing it to just a spiritual you know, being or something like that, when it's like, well, actually, no, if I maybe go exercise or if I get some medicine or if I get some help from a doctor, then this would be better um, rather than the Satan. Um, now, that's not to say we got to be careful and balance. Like sometimes you know, this is the, the art of biblical counseling, right? We are um, physical, spiritual beings, and there's not a clear, definitive line between that separates physical and spiritual. They're just melded together. And so, uh, you know, you look at Psalm 32, and David is confessing, he's talking about his sinfulness. And when he had unconfessed sin in his life, he wasn't sleeping well, and he was crying on his bed all night. So it's like you could say, well, he has insomnia. He could have said that, like in today's in today's terminology, but he had a guilty conscience. So that was a spiritual issue. It wasn't the Satan, but it was a spiritual issue. So we just got to be careful there to be uh, precise. So the important thing is we have talked about all this, and I mentioned this last night is um, or last night last weekend is we don't want to associate all evil to Satan. Our own wicked, fallen, depraved hearts can take care of that themselves, but we also don't want to associate no evil with Satan because he is very active in this world. He is very active in doing great, terrible things. Um, so we, we want to make sure we maintain accountability in our own personal lives, um, but also that we are on guard. A couple of just takeaways here. Don't underestimate Satan. In Jude chapter, or Jude verse 8, there's no chapters in Jude. Jude chapter 1. 
verse 8, Yet in like manner uh, these people... Uh, also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So as we understand the schemes of the devil, and we are called to resist him, to put on the armor of God to resist his schemes and his attacks, we are not called to go on the attack. We are not called to go on the offensive. We are not, as my remember one of my professors in theology seminary would say, we're not to charge hell with a water pistol, because that's what it would be like. Right? It's, 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 we, Mike, Michael didn't even presume to get into it with Satan, but to let, leave judgment to God. God's going to take care of you. I'm going to do what God told me to do. I'm going to take the body of Moses and leave. And I'm going to let God take care of you. I ain't going to pursue. So if, if Michael didn't even do that, how much more so should we not underestimate Satan? Uh, we don't want to underestimate him. We don't want to overestimate him. So again, it's a balancing act like many things in Scripture is. There may be times where you fi- feel yourself uh, giving too much attention to Satan uh, in your thoughts, in your actions, and sometimes we might not be thinking about it at all. It's kind of like the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, the Holy Spirit is uh, the third person of the Trinity, but yet, how often do we talk about Him in church? How often do we pray to the Holy Spirit? How much do we sing about Him? I mean, it's like, and sometimes that's because of an overreaction to the abuses of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Think about like charismatic churches, uh, you know, just how they abuse a lot of varying doctrines about the Holy Spirit. So then sometimes in the more conservative evangelical circles, we go, wow, I'm not like that. We just instead of finding the biblical middle, we just swing too far to the other side. As Christians, that's what we tend to do. Instead of balance, because balancing takes work. It's, you know, like if you're balancing like a, you know, anyone ever slack lined? You know, it's like, a, it's like taking a, 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 a ratchet strap from a truck and wrapping it around a tree. So it's not like a balancing wire. It's a little wider and trying to balance. But it takes, it's tension, right? It takes muscles and effort to balance. Same thing with scriptures. There's a lot of truth we have to take in, balance them. And it takes a lot of work. And we don't always like to do that work. So we just swing too far to one side. So it takes some work. Don't give a large place in thought and conversation. Be on guard about Satan and his schemes. Be aware. That's what the scriptures tell you. Ephesians 6. Be on guard. Beware. He prowls around like a lion, not just he himself, but all of his demons, seeking to uh, deceive and dilute the ministry of Christians, to divide churches, to sow tares among the wheat. Um, When you're sharing the gospel with someone, are you aware of how Satan could be hindering the gospel message that you are sharing? And so you pray before you talk to that person at work or in your family, God, please protect this person from Satan who comes like a bird and snatches the seed away, let them hear this word. God is sovereign, remember that. He is sovereign and He uses Satan. Anything that Satan does in this world, when you watch the news, when you see terrible things happening in the world, it is good and right to uh, sometimes be angry, righteously, uh, to be sad when you see terrible things happening, but at the same time we have to trust the Lord. God's in control of everything. He is sovereignly ordaining all things that come to pass. And even when Satan is doing wrong, evil, wicked things, he is in control of that. He has ordained it. Uh, Job chapter 1 is a good example, right? Well, those are a lot of terrible things that happened to Job. 
God was in control of it every step of the way. Jesus dying on a cross was a terrible thing. God ordained for it to happen before the foundations of the world, and it brought about the greatest good. So we trust in the Lord, even in the midst of hard things, and then we use God's provisions. We run to the finished work of Christ. We pray as Christ intercedes for us, and we are um, on guard against the tactics of Satan. So that kind of brings us to a conclusion there on demonology. So we've got a good a little bit of time left if anybody has any questions um, about angelology or demonology, um, things that are lingering in your mind or anything I've said that you're like, uh, I don't understand that, anything. Yeah. So, so let me just try to summarize that. So there's quite a few passages there you threw out. Um, so you got to be mindful of the context of each of those passages. But it seemed like your question in general was, is it possible to be a Christian and not bear any fruit? Okay. So that, that's a whole other ballpark category, uh, and I'm, I'm happy to answer it. Because um, uh, the short answer is No. Biblically, no. There's a lot of passages we could go to. Um, there will always be the fruit of the Spirit immediately in the life of a Christian, though we don't always, um, you know, it might be this, this tiny little seedling of the fruit or whatever. You know, God doesn't give you some of the fruit at one time. He gives you the whole bouquet, uh, the whole cornucopia of the fruit right away, um, though we're not mature in our exercise of it. Um, but yeah, you mentioned a few passages like um, in John 14. Uh, another, another one would be good is John 15. Talk, Jesus talking about abiding in the vine, um, producing fruit. Now, you mentioned Philippians to uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Um, just to be clear, that passage is, is referring to sanctification and not justification. So it's not saying go work out your salvation, you know, go make sure you get, go get saved. You know, uh, we sometimes in our contemporary culture and language, we say, go work it out, go figure it out, go do it. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And we don't want to read that kind of thinking into that verse. What he's saying is work outward what is already true inside you is what he's saying there. So you're already saved, work it outward, show it, manifest it. Um, but yeah, I mean, another one would be James, you know, talks about how um, a, f- a faith that does not have evidence of works is, a, is not a saving faith, it's a dead faith. So um, yeah, I think, uh, does that answer your question? 
I mean, Jesus himself shows in the Gospel of John that just because somebody believes, and he even uses the pistuo Greek word there, um, doesn't mean that they're truly saved, because there is a form of easy believism, simp- uh, uh, this idea of intellectual assent, agreeing with the facts. Like, I, There's a lot of people who know the facts about the Bible, know that Jesus was a real man, but aren't saved. And Jesus had these crowds of people following him in John chapter 6, and he knew, he says, he says these people, it said these people believe, and then right after that, Jesus says he did not entrust himself to them, using the same Greek word for belief. He did not believe in their belief. Jesus, who knows the hearts of all men, I don't know the hearts of all men, but Jesus knew, even though these people were following him, and the Bible says that they were believing some of the things they said, they didn't believe who he really was. They didn't have a true saving faith. So it's very possible, uh, just some kind of uh, anecdotal examples, is just uh, a terrifying, sobering verse is Matthew 7, at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he says that many, that's what's so sobering about it, many on the day of judgment will come before Jesus thinking they are saved, Saved, and will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, did I not? And list off all these things they did for him. He will say, away with you. I never knew you. There will be people who stand before Jesus thinking they had belief, they had salvation, but they did not have a relationship with Jesus. They had knowledge. They had intellectual agreement. People, There's a lot of people who don't want to go to hell. But they says, I never knew you. And that word in the Greek for know is this idea of intimate relationship. I didn't know you. You didn't know me. So, yeah, I, I don't, this doesn't, this doesn't mean anything, but I, I've not heard of that. But I've never heard of him. Yeah, do you have a question in the back? Oh, I was just going to say, even the demons believe in Yep, James, yep. They shudder, but it doesn't save them. And they have good theology for the most part. <laughs> They know who God is. Yeah. Um, do you have any advice for us? Um, I've been struck numerous times in speaking with other um, believers who wield the name of Jesus like a lightsaber. <laughs> you know, in the course yes. of a conversation, we'll say, I bind that spirit of fear mm. in Jesus' name. Yes. And, um, you know, your James verse kind of discusses the archangel of God puts himself under the authority mm. of God yeah. to deal with that. So how can we interact with that idea that's so prevalent? Yeah, so people, yeah. So basically what I would, how I would advance that. So how, her question, if you didn't hear it and for the recording, is how do you interact with folks who um, will use Jesus's name, uh, uh, sprinkling it like they're cooking food all throughout conversation and just in in talking about Satan and evil things in such a way as if they are controlling the situation and rebuking Satan in Jesus name. You you know, this is like that. Uh, I have a funny, if I have time, I'll share a funny story kind of relating to that. But uh, it's to address what does it mean to pray in Jesus name? What does the Bible mean when Jesus teaches us to pray in his name? Sometimes a lot of Christians will treat it like it's the, it's the little incantation. You have to say it every prayer, and it's like the stamp that you put on a letter, and then it makes its way up to God. Only if you say in Jesus' name. But what, is, what did Jesus mean by that? Well, he meant that when you pray in his name, you are praying according to his will. 
To pray in Jesus' name is to pray within his authority and to pray in such a way. Because he says, whatever you pray in my name, I will do it. If we go to Luke, Luke chapter 11 and look at Jesus talking about prayer, anything you pray in my name, I will do it. And people are like, oh man, this means, can I pray for a, a new car in Jesus' name? No, you pray in accordance with his will. Right? You think about the, how Jesus taught the disciples to pray in Matthew 6. Um, uh, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the umbrella for everything else that's in the prayer. I'm submitting my life to you. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your name be revered. It's the most important thing. Give me today the food I need to eat. Deliver us from the evil one. Forgive us as we forgive others. All those things are aiding me in, in revering God's name and carrying out his will on earth. Um, prayer is not giving God an invoice saying, I would like this and sliding it across the table. Prayer is not about conforming God to your will, but conforming you to God's will. And so when people think praying in Jesus' name is a way to get stuff, they have a bad theology of prayer. And they are misusing the phrase in Jesus' name. So that's how I would address that. Now, what made me laugh is I remember I went to a Christian school for a couple years, um, and we had a Bible teacher. She was from a Assemblies of God church. She, I loved her to death. She was a wonderful woman, godly woman. She tells the story of how she got in her car one night. I don't remember what she was at, but there was a thief in the back seat and put up a knife or a gun to her side and said, drive lady. And in true fashion, only that Mrs. Bieber could do, she went, in Jesus name, no. <laughs> and the guy goes, shut up lady and just drive. And she just kept saying that over and over again. Jesus, Jesus name, no. And he eventually just got out of the car and left. <laughs> so. Must have been a, an interaction with a demon now. I just, <laughs> but any other questions? Uh, angels, demons? There was one question uh, I think uh, Sean Lawson asked me um, was about uh, the term elect angels, which you find in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Uh, turn there real quick. Just verse 12. Mm, I wrote 1 Timothy 5.21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So context is talking about elders who bring a charge against another elder. And so Paul is saying, he's taking this very seriously. Don't you dare be partial or unjust in bringing a charge against another elder. And he makes it such a serious, solemn warning that he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels. So that's the context. But what's this idea of elect angels? Well, I mean, just the, it's the same kind of term used of Christians who are elect, like in Romans 8.33, Titus 1, uh, many other passages. To be elect just means to be chosen. So then the natural question that would follow when you read that is, well, okay, in, in the beginning, when Satan led a third of the angels astray, uh, were those angels not elect? And then are the rest elect? Or another way to ask it is, can angels fall today? Can an angel in heaven today go, you know what? 
I've been working for you for thousands of years, God, and I've had it up to here. I'm going to go down and I'm going to hang out with Satan now. I'm a demon. Well, I mean, based on that, I can't be dogmatic about it, but I would think based on that, no. They are chosen angels of God. Uh, we see other descriptions in the Bible. They are holy. So I would say that no, an angel cannot fall today. Um, if for some reason there was an argument that they could, um, then I would just like look to the future hope when everything will be redeemed fully in the new heavens and new earth, and that will be the time when nobody, everything's set in stone, nobody's going to fall away anymore or anything like that. So, uh, but from that, my just an initial reading of that and the understanding of the word elect to be chosen. Uh, those whom God chooses do not fall away. So I would say angels cannot fall away anymore. Uh, so then why did some fall away in the beginning? Uh, it's kind of like Adam and Eve, I think, in the garden. Uh, they were, I would say, an untested holiness, unconfirmed holiness. So they were good. God created them and everything was good. There was no sin. There was no evil yet. But once they were tempted and tested, they fell. So I think it may be the same way with the angels. So maybe those who are now holy angels have a confirmed holiness. So that's just some of that speculation, though. Any other questions? We've got two minutes. All right, well, we'll let you go. If you have any questions, you can email me. You can come and talk to me afterwards. Um, but uh, thanks, everybody. We'll start next week on ecclesiology, the study of the church. And it's going to be super sweet. It's going to go really well and right along with the sermon series that's been started this week on, uh, I think, church membership. Uh, ecclesiology is a huge topic. It's not just about membership. It's not just about polity and church governance, but just about the theology of the fascinating spiritual uh, creation that God has made called the church, the church universal, and what its purpose, what is the purpose of the church? Why did God make a church? Like, why? You know, it's, it's, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be so good. But uh, may you guys go forth this week a little more wiser and aware of the schemes of the devil and on guard against it and a little more worshipful and praising God for the way, mighty ways he works, even through evil creatures, but also through good, holy, elect angels in bringing about his glory. So you're dismissed.